Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Jackbox Games. Get five hilarious party games in the Jackbox Party Pack from the creators of You Don't Know Jack. Now on Xbox One, PS3, PS4, Steam, and more. Go to jackboxgames.com for more info. Thanks, Jackbox. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Arnault, and this is part two of the Nerdwatch Presents Your Stories podcast we're calling Annual Four, because it marks our fourth birthday as a show. Uh, we're celebrating the year that was with some of our favorite storytellers from 2015, like Mike Gifford, Tracy Hall, Mike Josie, Stephanie Spence, and Claire Friedman. Uh, Claire, Dwight, Jim, and myself are also performing a few of our favorite songs from the year. We are primed to have a pretty sweet 2016, and we're kicking it off this Sunday with our first Your Stories recording of the year. Uh, our featured guests hail from the One Shot and Campaign podcast, fellow Chicago podcast co-op shows that are fantastic role-playing game-based shows. Uh, that'll be 7 p.m. this Sunday at the Sum Office Theater, 1917 North Elston in Chicago, free as always. Uh, also, next Sunday, the 23rd, we're doing another Your Stories team-up with the Chicago Design Museum. Uh, we'll actually be at the museum, which is located in the Block 37 Mall downtown. We'll have more information on that with next week's episode, but we are really excited. Uh, I don't have a ton more to say here, except to again thank our sponsors for this episode, Jackbox Games, and to thank the whole Chicago Podcast Co-op. Uh, you can explore all the co-op shows at shypodcastcoop.com, as well as on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, we'd love it if you could rate and review our show. That really, truly helps a ton. Uh, thank you all for listening, guys. Annual 4 Part 2, here we come. So this is my second pick of the night. Um, this is my favorite album of the year. It's not Ryan Adams. It is by uh, The Mountain Goats. It's yeah. called Beat the Champ. <laughs> and I really like this song because it starts off as a tribute to a little-known wrestler. It ends up being a song about how the singer's dad is a piece of shit. You know what? I'm always down for songs about dads being terrible people. So, uh, here we go. This is called The Legend of Chavo Guerrero. One, two, three, born down in El Paso, where the tumbleweeds blow to the middleweight champ of all Mexico. Dad fought many bloody battles and raised four sons. Chavo was the oldest one. Old man Gory could pop like a live grenade. Raised his boys in the way of the trade. Hector and Mondo, young Eddie G. 
Chavo meant the most to me. Look high, it's my last hope. Chavo Guerrero, coming off the top rope. He came from Texas seeking fortune and fame. Rose pretty quickly to the top of his game. Defender of the downtrodden, king of the hill. Tag team champion with Almadrill Before a black and white TV In the middle of the night I'm lying on the floor I'm bathed in moonlight With the telecast in Spanish I can understand some I need justice in my life Here it comes, look high It's my last hope Chavo Guerrero Coming off the top rope Red Shoes Dugan Holding his arm high All out of breath I hated all the Chavo's enemies I'd pray nightly for their death Descending like fire On the people who deserved it most Almost completely unknown Outside of Texas and the West Coast He was my hero back when I was a kid let me down, but Chavo never once did. You call them names to try to get beneath my skin. Now your ashes are scattered on the wind. I heard his son got famous. He went nationwide, coast to coast with his dad by his side. I don't know if that's true, but I've been told it's real sweet to grow old. Look high, it's my last hope. Chavo Guerrero, coming off the top rope. So fucking good. This is a popular song. That album's really good though. It's all about uh, wrestling and it's so fucking good. I don't even really care about wrestling, but that album is amazing. What? I'm sorry, I don't. But I care about Chavo. I'm gonna promo on you right now. <laughs> Where am I sitting here? Oh uh, yeah, let's do that. This is not a just a reprise of Uptown Funk, unfortunately. <laughs> is this the one I think it is? Uh yes. Me. 
need a space. My discotheque Juliet teenage dream. I felt it in my chest as she looked at me. Knew we were bound to get together, bound to be together. She took my arm. I don't know how it happened. We took the floor and she said, Oh, don't you dare look back. Just keep your eyes on me. I said, You're holding back. She said, Shut up. I'm adjusting. I'm adjusting. Excuse me. Ugh. God, so much movement. That's why I don't like sex either. You move so much. Anyway, I'm Mike Gifford. I'm a homosexual. It's the holiday season, so you see a lot of people you may not normally spend time with. And these folks will come up to you and say things like, So how are you doing? You may respond like me. I'm fine. But that's not enough. Oh, no. They follow up with, really, though, what have you been up to? Son of a bitch, you don't care. You don't care at all. If you did care, then you would have called me in between Turkey. But you didn't, and that is fine. Why is that fine? It's fine because when you ask somebody, really, though, what have you been up to, you force them to re-examine their own lives. And that is a nightmare, especially for me. (laughs) But you asked for it, so I will tell you how I'm doing. I'm usually too tired to masturbate on the weekdays, so I wait for the weekend. After I finish jerking off, I usually watch the 90s cartoon intro of Alvin and the Chipmunks. That's what I've been up to. Since we last spoke, I had the pleasure of varying degrees of sexual contact with four men. One Puerto Rican, one black, one Filipino, and one white. My asshole can now sing the Michael Jackson classic song, We Are the World. (laughs) 
So that's what I've been up to. Sidebar. So, this past Monday, I found myself tempted to go to a strip club. It was a male strip club. I am a homosexual. Let's not get crazy. So, this was the second time I have ever been to a strip club. Now, you're probably asking yourselves, Mike Gifford, you're an AM boring old cunt. What the fuck are you doing going to a strip club on a Monday? Go to bed, Mike Gifford. Well... I went to that strip club because every now and again, like Moses looking upon the grand horizon of the promised land, I thought maybe, just maybe, this one time, I will find happiness. So I found myself at this strip club. And the moment that I entered into the Lucky Horseshoe, I realized it was a catastrophic mistake. As I said previously, I'm not into sexual contact whatsoever. There's too much movement. There's a lot of sweating. It's awkward. So anyway, I was approached by a stripper by the name of James. He was a Korean-American. James began to make a move on me. His hand started to approach my cock area. This made me very uncomfortable. I gave James a $20 bill to stop touching me. Now, James was distressed by this because that is not the normal parlance of a strip club. So, in order, because he was on the clock, so as he didn't look lazy, I agreed to let him touch my shoulder. That was fair. So anyway, after he was touching my shoulder, we talked about work. He's in real estate in the morning or some such business. We talked about other things. It was very nice. I then asked him, I said, how old are you? He said, well, why don't you guess my age? How coy. I said, well, if I'm going to guess your age, why don't you guess my age first? He said, 38. Son of a bitch. What the fuck? And strip clubs are even dark so that everybody looks better. So basically what he's saying is, I look 38 years old in the dark. And the sad thing about that is, I bet half of you thought that he got it right on the mark. (laughs) James reacted to my... Uh, aversions of going crazy over that by saying, God, you remind me of my mother. So, I look like a 38-year-old Korean mother in the dark. This is my strip club experience. And I have to think to myself, when I look in the mirror, this is what adulthood is. This is what I have become. This. This is the rest of my life. And one day, I will be dead. And that was it. End of sidebar. (laughs) Two of the men I had relations with were straight prior to me. So, if you are a guy and make out with me and like it, that makes you a faggot. That's what I've been up to. So what's new with you? Happy Christmas. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Mike Gifford. Oh my god, I love Mike so much. I am a little dismayed that apparently male strippers don't have fun names like Candy and Destiny. They're just James, Fred. What the fuck? They can at least say G.I. Joe names. Oh, I'm Roadblock. I'm Firehouse. That'd be pretty sweet. All right. All right, we're going to do a small change in the running order here. Uh, coming up, our next two spots, we have two speakers that uh, were brought to our attention by the wonderful Tanner Woodford, who is, is unfortunately not here tonight, but Tanner is a great dude. He partnered up with us for a show back in June that was amazing. Coming up first of those two speakers, we have the Deputy Commissioner uh, of the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events at the Chicago Cultural Center. This is Tracy Hall. Did everybody else get a like introduction about their job? <laughs> I, I did, did I hear that? Did everybody else get? Mike Gifford, what do you do? I do human resources. Okay. How <laughs> come they didn't say that? How come they didn't say that? So that's so weird because it's sort of it's sort of like um, you have some of those jobs and it's sort of like you know this person is an Avon lady in your neighborhood. Well, what's her name? Gracie. So anyway, I'm going to um, be, because I actually have one of, I'm like one of those people who actually has like this um, crazy like thing that if I am too late, I can't really function. So, because I'm old now, much older than uh, 38. Um, but I'm going to kind of uh, move it in a different direction because I was thinking a little bit about annual candy cane walk because annual was the uh, sort of theme of the night. And... Um, I want to just uh, first thank Tanner um, Woodard, who is um, with the, uh, the Chicago Design Museum. He is his sort of like brainchild, and he is a uh, really amazing person. Uh, and so he was the one who connected me to the Nerdalogs. And I love music, and I came and I heard the music, and I was like, oh, my God, I don't care about the story that I'm telling. <laughs> I just want to listen to the music, and it's really good. But I've loved the stories, too, so I'm going to try to do – I'm going to try to fit in. I don't know, but this is something I've been thinking about a long time. So um, anyway, it kind of came up for me around what's happening now in Chicago when I think about um, this idea of police brutality really exposing um, all the different Chicagos that um, we live in. And I remember once at work in the capacity that I am now, one of my colleagues, actually a staff member, was talking about the police and I got this really kind of like um, this feeling. And I thought to myself, you know, I might be the only one around the table that thinks the way that I do when I hear that word, that bristles uh, when I hear that word, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit. So I grew up in and around Watts in um, Southern California, and when we could finally hang on to a little bit of money, we moved to a nearby suburb, you know, like Compton, Linwood, um, so uh, where my mom thought the schools could be better. And it was a mixed neighborhood, but not for long. All the people that would have made it mixed started moving as soon as families like ours started moving in. By the time we'd been there almost uh, three years, everybody in our neighborhood was a recent arrival, all black and brown. The only thing that hasn't changed was the police. Actually, in uh, my town, they were called sheriffs. Maybe once upon a time, they have been protectors of the peace or servants of the peace or whatever um, it's called, getting kittens out of trees or the person to call when your bicycle went missing. But by the time I could understand how things went down, I already knew that you shouldn't call the police unless you didn't care which heads got flown. But there was one time every year where you felt that maybe the sheriffs were on your side. And this was the anti, the annual Santa walk. 
At least that's what they still called it. It was actually more of an annual Santa run for us kids. The sheriffs, um, actual, they don't, they didn't walk the streets anymore. Rather, they came screeching down the boulevard in their cars. And we kids would be prepared, you know, our parents would have gotten the flyer or the scan drawing, whatever, whatever it was. Um, and we were already on our porches, dressed and waiting for the sound of the engines ramping up and the brakes screeching. At every stop, the sheriffs would be sitting two in a car and they would stop and, and drop handfuls of candy, cinnamon drops and caramels and candy canes out of the windows of the car. And we kids would exclaim our glee, laughing and, loun- and lunging at the candy. Boys stuffing their pockets and girls like me just shamelessly using the hems of our dresses to gather all kinds of stuff. And sometimes um, before the sheriffs drove off, you could catch their eyes and see them smiling, enjoying it the way that we did. And our parents would be nearby in the yards looking on, and, and some of them were really happy, I know. Um, if some of these sheriffs, and I'm sure they did, supplemented the candy budget with their own contributions, then God bless them. I know I'm not the only one who sometimes, though, looks back on what seemed to be an innocent childhood moment and think, what the hell was that? <laughs> when I think back um, to those times, I ask myself a couple of questions. I say to myself, when did the Santa walk become a Santa car toss? When did it become okay to dump masses of candy in the middle of the street, leaving little kids sifting through broken candy canes? And why? Did this have anything to, ch- to do with the changing neighborhood? how the demographic change of the neighborhood led to this growing sense of them versus us. And why in my neighborhood, and why for those sheriffs, was something like this okay? So that's what I've been thinking about, the annual Santa walk. Thank you so much, Tracy. So, to be fair, I did introduce uh, Henry by his job, and Katie's job is basically the nerdologues, right? Like, what do you care more about, really? I don't know. Pays me. <laughs> None of us are getting paid for this. <laughs> Speaking of people with cool jobs, coming up next to the stage, another person we met through Tanner Woodford told an amazing story back in June. So happy to have him here now. Uh, this gentleman is the partner and community director at Designation. This is Mike Josie. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, Two things before I get started uh, real quick. Uh, I asked Eric last time I was here to kind of help me with the stand thing, uh, and he didn't, and I said as a joke, um, there'll be a little extra something in your paycheck this week. And Claire accosted me outside after, and she was like, who told you we get paid for this? Uh, The other thing is there was a photographer at that event, uh, and I was doing something, because I I talk with my hands a lot. I was doing this, apparently, uh, I forget what what it was for, but the angle that the photographer caught it at looked like I was doing like a a Janet Jackson. Um, So I'm going to try not to do that again this time, just in case. Okay. Three months ago, I stopped drinking alcohol. Uh, when I tell people that, I pretty much always get the same reaction. <coughs> like, forever? <laughs> a lot of them bristle, and they kind of recoil, and they steal their shoulders a little bit, and, and they narrow their eyes a little. They're summing me up. Is this guy judging me for uh, drinking now? And then they judge me for thinking that I'm judging them. 
maybe that weariness is a generational thing. I mean, uh, everyone my age had that dick friend in college that went straight edge vegan and was instantly morally superior to everybody else. People really want to automatically defend uh, their definition of normal. So I have to scramble for a response that uh, is going to signal that everything's still okay. Usually it's sort of a disaffected, yeah? Then everything sort of slumps forward with them, and they, uh, they're curious. There must be a why, why I did this. Uh, but the truth is that there wasn't really a distinct reason. Uh, it wasn't health-related, and it wasn't about addiction. So I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Uh, there's this term in psychology called imprinting. Uh, the first time I ever drank beer, it was my dad's Coors Light. You maybe know where the story is going. I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen him drink something besides a can of light beer. So from then on, I just assumed that beer was supposed to taste like water. Uh, in college, when I was still underage, I would get served by uh, a waitress friend at the dive bar across from campus. I had the pick of any drink in the place, and I ordered a goddamn Budweiser every time. I think the psychological term for that is bad decision-making. <laughs> so later on and uh, in my life, and especially when I discovered Benny's, sweet, wonderful Benny's, uh, I finally trained myself to develop a palate. Uh, bourbon stouts, rum, mezcal, white Russians, Baileys, vanilla vodka, Malbec, yes. Uh, Moscow mules, whiskey, IPAs, no. Uh, and then there was Malort. The existence of Malort is proof that this was a good decision. <laughs> Uh, as a functional adult, alcohol is everywhere, which means it's really easy to incorporate that into your daily routine. Uh, I drank something with dinner out. I got drinks before dinner. I got drinks after dinner. I would have a beer mosa at a weekend brunch. I would have a beer with lunch. I would make mix a drink when I got home from work. I'd maybe have a beer uh, when I would make dinner. And as a functional adult in Chicago, alcohol is really everywhere. Uh, an hour after you move here, someone knocks on the door and hands you a beer, a donut, and a steak. Um, <laughs> that was my official welcome kit. I don't know if anybody else had that experience. Um, in other words, drinking ends up becoming a utility rather than an app. Uh, it's not like Twitter, actually, uh, these days. People start to subconsciously reach for it when they have a thought, and they believe that writing a tweet about their daily minutiae is like eating and blinking. Uh, what I figured out, and, and this might sound a little weird, is that drinking had lost its meaningfulness. Uh, maybe it never had any, and maybe the point of drinking is to make make it ordinary. Uh, so a quick story to explain what I mean by that. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had three friends visiting from out of town, and we all went somewhere in Wicker Park for dinner, and uh, I asked them what they wanted to do after, and of course they said, let's go to a bar. Uh, I took them somewhere that was packed and loud, and uh, we ended up standing around a table in the corner. Uh, now, I've been listening to music really loudly for about 25 years, um, so when it comes to a loud room, I have a hard time processing uh, and filtering distinct noises. So uh, I can hear somebody across the room the same way that I can hear the person right in front of me. Uh, so I haven't really enjoyed bars for a while, but now since I'm not drinking, it's kind of like taking a sloth to a dog run. So three things hit me at this bar. One, this bar is just like every other bar in the world. There is nothing special about it. Number two, the idea of going to a bar and standing around a table is, uh, is a ritual. Uh, the people of the reason may not be special, uh, but the ritual itself is, uh, or the people of the reason may be special for going to the bar, but the ritual itself is almost never special. And three, my whole adult life has been built around this ritual. Uh, actually, so much of our collective social experience is as well. Alcohol is meant to be communal, given freely to all who want it. Uh, pass the bottle, BYOB, buy around, take and drink from it, all of ye. 
So much of what we fundamentally believe in about alcohol is that it's something uh, that brings us together. So I feel oddly like I'm letting down my friends by not wanting to participate in that. Uh, and not just friends, it's my coworkers at company events, uh, my family at Thanksgiving, asking to meet dates at somewhere other than a bar. It's really impacted a lot of my interactions. Uh, and I should mention also, I get really screwed at group dinners when we go out. Uh, everyone wants to split a bottle of wine or order like four old fashions, but not little Mr. Water Pitcher over here. Uh, someone always makes the, uh, you're a cheap date <laughs> joke. Um, and I have to be that guy who's like, I'm sorry, but we can't split the check uh, X number of ways. There's a, a maxim out there, you are what you eat. Everybody's heard that. Uh, but I wonder now, are you what you drink also? That growth of my drinking ability and palate basically follows my development as a grown-up. Uh, in a lot of ways, being without it has broken me down to a more elemental state where I'm relearning what it means to know what gives me satisfaction. Uh, my personality back as a kid was embryonic. Uh, I turned out okay. I turned out a fully formed person. Uh, but now I'm sort of a new person, one who sees that path ahead uh, uh, without that much clarity. Or maybe I should rephrase that. I'm uh, relearning to uh, define what it means to be normal. Uh, and I'm figuring out how to talk about that the definition of normal for myself. So back to that original question, like forever. Uh, I don't know. Um, part of me wants to continue this to see how long I can do it to please myself. Um, the other part of me wants to really earn a drink someday. Um, not like before where the idea of like just making it to Friday uh, was enough. But doing something truly momentous uh, that really uh, breaks the rhythms of my everyday life. Um, the follow-up question to that is, uh, will I know what that is when it comes along? And then, will I care? Uh, but until then, I'm good with water. Thanks. Thank you, Mike Josie. Man, what a thoughtful and great dude. Mike, also a big REM fan. Did I remember that right? You're all right, Mike. Yeah. Coming up next to the stage, uh, this young lady we did a show with, uh, the, so our podcast year, it, it's not like the calendar year, it goes from November to October, so she was in the first podcast of our podcast year, which I actually missed, sadly. Jim filled in for me, and everyone, when I, when I talked to them, oh, how did the show go, how did the show go, they said, you have to hear this story about a manatee. And fortunately, she has come back to tell a new story. This is Stephanie Spence. <laughs> you guys to invite me back again after I told kind of a heinous story. <laughs> it's like maybe good that you missed it. <laughs> it's, it's good, you guys. It's good. I feel like you're probably psychologically better off like having not heard that story if you weren't here. Um, but I have a different story today. So last year, I got upgraded to the adults table at Christmas. And I feel like this is a universal experience, right? Like, there's, you know, you have a table where the seven-year-olds sit and, like, everyone, you know, under the age of 30, essentially. And then you have a table where the adults sit and they talk about adult things like politics and music. And when you get to the adult table, you get to have beer, you get to have Heineken and Manischewitz, which is really, for real, what my parents drink for Christmas. Like, I get home and they drink, they, like, drink Manischewitz for fun. And I've tried, I've tried to break them of this habit, but it's, it's not happening. So last year, I got, I was there, I was in the open bar, I sat with the adults, and I was like, this is great, I, I can't wait to like talk about all this cool stuff with you guys. Um, generally, you know, for Christmas, um, my whole family comes, both sides of my family, and my family is Jamaican. Um, all of my aunts, my uncles, my parents, my grandparents are from Jamaica, and kind of the stories that they were telling that year was about how, you know, they came to America. Now, I was born here, so, you know, I was, I was excited. I was like, all right, cool. You know, this isn't something my family talks about that often. 
So it was it was very exciting. So I poured my Manischewitz. I'm like, let's do it, you guys. <laughs> let's talk about North America, yeah. So we need we need a little background um, because you know you guys don't know about my family. Um, my mother's family came from a town in Jamaica called Linstead, and it's a very small town. And what they did there. Um, was essentially own a tiny grocery store. They sold, like, bread and things like that, Jamaican beef patties. And they sold wine, and I use the word wine very loosely because it was essentially, like, prison wine. Like, they had a tub, and they put fruits in it and, like, you know, like, 156-proof rum, and they, like, let that sit for a little bit, and then they sold it to people. And, you know, like, this is, this is their business. This is what they did. <laughs> um, which is, like, kind of devastating. Uh, and my my father grew up in a tiny town, which I had. I googled it today to try to figure out how big it was, and Google didn't know. Google's like, what? What? And I was like, Jamaica. How, how many people live there? And Google's like, uh, lowball, five hundred maybe. It's about five hundred people. Um, and I asked my dad, and he said, that sounds about right. So it's about five hundred people and about like five hundred goats and five hundred cows. It's it's a small you know rural town in this giant mountain. And um, if you grew up there, you were a farmer, and that was that's what you did. Um, and if my father had stayed there, he would have been a farmer. And if my mother had stayed in Linstead, she would be a bartender and be serving prison wine. Uh, but they didn't do that. They didn't do that. They, they came to America. And how it worked kind of back in the day was that you would send your oldest, your oldest child, your daughter, your son, to America. And they would sponsor all of your younger siblings. So they would be there for a couple years. They'd get a job, and they'd sponsor back. And it, it doesn't really work like that so much anymore. But, you know, this was my parents' experience. And they were telling these stories, like, with, with such a feeling of joy and happiness that were difficult for me to understand and hear. And one of the stories that really stuck out to me was my oldest aunt, who came here first. Um, she actually went to Canada first, so she was in Montreal for about a year before she moved back to America. Uh, so she flew up here, and she, her plane stopped in Tampa, and on the way to Montreal. And uh, she was thirsty, and she wanted to get a drink. And this was in the 50s or 60s, like the early 60s, I think. Uh, and so she gets off, and she sees a water fountain, and she's like, great. And she goes over there, and there are two signs. And one says white, and one says color. And she kind of looks at it, and she's like, I want the white water. Like, why? Water, drink, color, water. This is juice. Like, you know, disgusting. So she drinks the white water, and she gets on the plane, and she goes. And, you know, they're, like, laughing about this story, like, ha you know, that's what's so crazy, that America. And I'm sitting there like, I'm going to go back to the kids' table. <laughs> I'm going to go back and play Yu-Gi-Oh cards with my cousins. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it, it wasn't a thing that they experienced in Jamaica. It's not, you know, they, they didn't know about America when they came here. Uh, there's no internet, there's no cat memes, there's no magazines. People didn't get mail. Like, and that was, like, really trippy for me. Like, my, no one in my father's town got mail. Uh, essentially what it would be is someone would drive up, eh, whatever they felt like it, and kind of bring mail and give it to some dude who came to your house and you're like, hey, Todd, here's your National Geographic. But there was no mailbox. He just knew where you lived and someone would write your name and the parish where you lived and someone would bring the mail. So when they came, they just didn't, they were just very unaware of history. Just completely, really, they, they didn't know. Um, and, you know, they told that story and everyone's kind of laughing. And I'm like, and then my mom says, oh, oh Gifford, Gifford is my Oh, you should tell that. You should tell your story. You should. And he's kind of a quiet dude. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to tell. It's not that good. So my mom takes it upon herself to tell this great story. And I'm like, all right, this will be cool, maybe. <laughs> Pour some more on Heineken. Let's do it. Um, my dad came to America when he was about 18. And um, 
he came, and he was actually sponsored at the same time as two of his brothers, so they all came together as a trio. And they moved from this town of 500 people to this town of, of a couple million people, because where they lived was New York. And they had an apartment in the Bronx. Uh, and so you can imagine kind of landing on this plane and just getting out, and your whole life was kind of like these goats and these cows and, you know, this mountain, and, like, no cars or anything, and kind of just stepping off and being like, holy fuck! These <laughs> 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 huge buildings, he had never seen so many cars, he had never seen so many people, so it was just like a huge experience for him. Let's, let's walk around. And so um, him and his two brothers are walking around. And even then, like the Bronx, like they were in the Bronx, and everyone's like, oh, the Bronx is not even that great. But to them, it was like, it was a whole experience. Like, wow, this is amazing. They're walking around. My mom's telling the story. They're walking around, and a car pulls up next to them. And a white man gets out of the car, and he's like, all right, boys, like, come with me. And they're like, huh? <laughs> was that talk going in? And he's like, come with, get in the car. And what was happening was that my father was being arrested. Him and his two brothers were literally being arrested. They got off the plane like 10 hours ago, and they were being arrested because they looked like somebody who had robbed like a convenience store nearby. Um, but all of this was really like quite lost on them because they had never even really seen police officers before. But this was happening. And this isn't a story I've ever heard my dad talk about. So I'm looking at him like, what, you, got you got arrested? Like, what, what happened? And... You know, they took him to the station, and um, there was a woman there. And she, they looked at the whole lineup of people, and they said, nope, it's not any of these guys. And the cop said, thank you very much, and, like, drove them back. But there was no, you know, this wasn't explained. Like, they didn't they didn't have any context here. Um, and so, you know, I was looking at my dad at Christmas, and I said, well, like, what, what happens, what happened next, you know? Like, you, you got arrested your first day here, what happened next? And he said, he really, he looked at me, and he said, well, nothing happened next. You know, this was... He, it was kind of his way of just saying that, like, this is, this is how life is. This is how life was, and how, kind of how life is for a lot of people. Um, and that was, that was difficult, you know? That was, that was tough. Um, and, you know, people kept telling stories like this that were just told in such a casual, very <laughs> casual way. Like, oh, yes, you know, when I was trying to get my first apartment, couldn't get it because I have an accent, but I have, I, you know, you get your white friend. They will call, and then, you know, suddenly the apartment is mysteriously free, and everyone's laughing, and it's great, but it's it's not great, <laughs> and it's not something that, you know, my family talks about very much, um, so, you know, if I had to title this story, I would honestly call it, like, nothing happens next, because this is just an experience that my parents have, and they, you know, they still are having experiences like this today, and, um, you know, next year is election year, it'll guys, and it's kind of like, well, what happens next? You know, we have all these new immigrants come. What happens next? What happens next when, you know, we have the Supreme Court voting on important cases? What happens next? And I hope it's not nothing. So that's my story. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you for coming back. Thank you all for coming back. What a fucking stack lineup tonight. You guys are so great. We have one more storyteller, and then we have a couple more songs to close out the night. Uh, you've seen this young lady on the stage already this evening. She also works for Cards Against Humanity. Uh, she is an integral part of this show and of Chicago podcasting. Claire Friedman. Hi, guys. Guess what? <laughs> I have a type story for once in my entire life. Okay. Um, I've spent the past few years trying valiantly uh, to not suck. 
Um, I, I had this aspirational model of myself, and, and I was thinking, like, hey, I, like, I'm doing an all right job of this. Like, I'm just about there. And then 2015 just looked me in the eye, and it was like, but what if your aspirational self sucks? So that's the kind of critical meta-thinking that I'm fucking terrible at. It's a reevaluation of what is good after the parameter of good has already been defined. It is arguing between Southwest and American Airlines and United and first-class versus economy, and then it's a kid going, what the fuck is metal doing in the sky? (laughs) If there is one personality trait I am seethingly, seepingly jealous of, it is having clarity of thought. Constructing airtight reasoning on the fly has never been my strength and has caused me to lose almost every argument I've ever been in. There's three people I'm very close to who are amazing at this. My older brother, Ben, uh, my boyfriend, Brad, and my mom. Uh, this year, my convictions of self, my convictions and my sense of self were really shaken. Is a generous narcissist a good person or a bad one? How much can your friend's suicidal tendencies dictate your schedule? Would I rather have an uncomfortable confrontation or a panic attack in a bathroom? My grandma died a few weeks ago. Listen to the previous episode of this show to hear how great and sassy she was. Uh, My brother and I were there with her the day before she died. And we found an essay that my mom had written in 1977, her freshman year of college, folded up into a photo album. She was a freshman in college at St. Ambrose, a small local Catholic school that she went to before transferring to Iowa State to get her bachelor's in biology. The whole essay is very, everything old is new again, and I felt it really resonated with a lot of things that have been happening both culturally and in my personal life. And so um, I wanted to take most of the time to actually just read part of that essay. Um, And it was for, uh, the top of the essay said, Phil Theo 1013, which I assume is not two dudes and is like philosophic theology or something like that. Philosophy of theology. Okay, so this was her summary of the article that she was uh, analyzing. Bishop Mark J. Hurley of Santa Rosa, California, said in Rome that the greatest threat to the church's values today is not Marxism, but the possibilities of human manipulation offered by scientific developments. He spoke after attending a session of the Vatican Secretariat for Nonbelievers. Note from Claire, this has now been changed. It does still happen, though, but it's been changed to the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. The topic of the session was youth and unbelief. Bishop Hurley says that because of the nature of the possibility of genetic engineering, we are dealing with great changes to what it means to be a human being. Other points made during the meeting concerned the wave of young people to flock to the church in times of political unrest, the wave of young people turning toward new mysticism, and a statement concerning separation of church from politics. Bishop Hurley concluded by saying Marxism presents a false picture of man, and our worries should be directed at science. Analysis. The main topic of Bishop Hurley's announcement deals with the moral implications and questions raised by genetic engineering. Genetic engineering would involve specific manipulation of the chromosomal structure of gene cells to produce desired traits in offspring. This is a theology class. Although this this biological engineering has not reached humans in an advanced state, the research and experiments now being performed seem to indicate that human manipulation is not far off. We must anticipate the moral implications of these developments. This is from my mother. I agree with Bishop Hurley's statement that the promise of human manipulation is bringing about great changes in human nature, but I would also add that as research in this field continues, human nature, note she crossed out will, may change so much as to be unrecognizable to those who have lived in this age. 
Conceivably, parents would few parents would take the chance on producing a dumb, ugly child when they could select an intelligent, handsome child of whichever sex they prefer. Note from Claire. Okay, Mom, we get it. You're writing the pitch for Gattaca. <laughs> Yet this concept of choosing only the best and seeing anything less than their definition of the best as inferior and unworthy of life conflicts radically with our modern-day ideals of loving, caring for, and wanting all types of people. I would go so far as to say that the genetic engineering concept of this type resembles Hitler's campaign to create a perfect race, and in doing so, eliminate all Jews and quote-unquote inferior races. Hitler made his own decision on what would be the perfect race, and was horribly wrong. Although these potential scientific developments may alter people's moral values, I don't think research should be stopped. To do so would hold mankind stagnant, just when we seem to be on the brink of making new discoveries about life. If, somehow, research was banned in the area of genetic engineering, it would not do away with the problems it raised. A ban would be, in effect, turning our heads away from a difficult situation. It would leave so many questions unanswered, moral and scientific, that a shadow would fall over a major area of knowledge and ignorance would grow. I'm reminded of a phrase often used by people who are afraid to fly in an airplane. If God meant for man to fly, he would have given us wings. I always want to answer, but he did give us wings, indirectly. He gave us desire, curiosity, and knowledge so that we could develop our own wings. I think that same reasoning could be applied here. As long as man is capable of acquiring knowledge, he should continue to do so. The two lines in that that resonated with me were... um, This is Claire again. I'm no longer my mother. Uh, The two lines that really resonated with me were, a ban would be, in effect, turning our heads away from a difficult situation. And as long as man is capable of acquiring knowledge, he should continue to do so. Two of the struggles I really had this year were facing hard questions about the way I was living my life, the habits I was forming, the things that I was doing over and over without really reexamining them, and not confronting it. Talk to my therapist about that one. Uh, three nights ago, a friend. <laughs> three nights ago, a friend of mine from high school called me to talk about a boy who had hurt her heart. Excuse me, a dickhole who didn't appreciate what a beautiful goddess she is. <laughs> it was my one night off that week, you know, which I had set aside because, like, you know, self care, peace and love. Um, I didn't want to talk to anybody, but that said, I still picked up the phone. And I stayed the night at my friend's house after he got out of the psych ward. And I got dinner with my brother just so he could complain about work. And I didn't do any of those things because I'm a good person. I did those things because I am a shithead. None of those things are hard, and I didn't want to do any of them. And realizing I didn't want to do any of them, I said to myself, Fuck you, Claire. Your friends deserve better than that. You're being a shitty, shitty person. Because who the fuck am I? To think that I get to be afraid when I get on an airplane. Do you know how few people get to die in an airplane crash? Like eight. (laughs) It's my ego that is justifying not getting on that plane and going and doing things. It is my ego that is justifying all these fears that I have and justifying it by saying, oh, I'm anxious and I'm afraid of everything. No, I'm not. I'm just being an asshole. Not talking to someone at a party because you're anxious is one thing. Not talking to someone at a party because you think you're better than everybody else is not. Okay. The only thing that matters 
is what actions you take and how much compassion you can show to others and how much you can say that plane is up in the sky and I can form my own opinion about that plane and I can appreciate it and know it for its good and its bad and its wrong and its right. And your parents don't get to define that for you, even if they do have impeccable logic and perfect cursive handwriting. That was so fucking legible. Um, <laughs> but even so, uh, we have so much knowledge at our fingertips at this point, And to turn away from it does not only a disservice to ourselves, but the people around us. And that's what I learned this year. Man, ending the night on a heavy note. But we do have more music. Uh, coming up next to the stage, this is going to be a solo from Mr. Jim Snedeker. Ooh, camp show. <laughs> I just want to – let's give it up for Jim, guys. Uh, yeah. So Jim Jim started uh, – he, he joined up with the house band uh, officially last year. And then he, he's taken some time off to work on his album, which uh, I've heard a track. It's really, really good. But he came back for this show, and I'm really happy that he's here. Oh, no, I need these words. Oh, yeah. Business on the low, low. I'm just trying to get you out the friend zone. Cause you look even better than the photos. I can't find your house and me the info. Driving through the gated residential. Found out I was coming, sent your friends home. Keep on trying to hide, but your friends know. I only call you when it's half for the only time that I'll be by your side I only love it when you touch me and I feel me When I'm fucked up, that's the real me When I'm fucked up, that's the real me, yeah I only fuck you when it's half past For the only time I'd ever call you mine I only love it when you touch me and I feel me When I'm fucked up, that's the real me When I'm fucked up, that's the real me Simple Trying to keep it up Don't see so simple I just fucked two bitches Before I saw you You gonna have to do it To my tempo Always trying to send me Off to rehab Drugs started feeling like It's decaf I'm just trying to live like For the moment And all these motherfuckers Wanna relax It's half past five The only time that I'll be by your side I only love it when you touch me And I feel me when I'm fucked up That's the real me when I'm fucked up That's the real me, yeah I only fuck you when it's half past five The only time I'd ever call you mine I only love it when you touch me And I feel me when I'm fucked up That's the real me when I'm fucked up
Yeah, we got one more. Oh, shit. Guys, that was Jim with a song by The Weeknd. And he spells his name funny. He does. He drops that last E. It's true. Because he's yeah. an artist. There are a lot of uh, songs that I don't learn any of the words to until they're played at your story. <laughs> like, I did not know any of those words were those words. I had to pick a song with fucking it. <laughs> that was played on GCI. I do it every year. <laughs> So we have one last song, but first I want to thank you all again for coming tonight. This is so wonderful. Thank you. You're great. Yeah. We, we, typically, do this, we typically do this the third Sunday of every month. Uh, we moved it up a little early this time, but uh, yeah, this is the end of it. Like I said, this is our fourth anniversary, so thanks for four years, guys. Next year's the fifth. We might have to do a critical reevaluation of what we're doing with our lives after that, but for now, it's all great. <laughs> nah, JK, JK. Uh, this is a really good year for the podcast. Uh, not this month, not tomorrow, but the week after, we're gonna do our best of podcast, uh, which will have some of the stories from people that talk tonight and some other stories from people who couldn't make it. And, uh, it's gonna be really cool. But for now, uh, let's do this song. Dwight, you wanna intro it? It's a good, it's a good song. Classic. 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 Great song. Uh, I really did not listen to a lot of new music this year, but, uh, I was actually riding around with Rock here and, uh, uh, he, the song came on. I'm just like, what the hell is this? This is amazing. And, uh, immediately went home at, that night and just, the entire album is, is just so good. It's, uh, Nathaniel Rateliff in the Night Sweats. Um, it's just good, like, southern soul rock, uh, uh album. And, uh, I would suggest everybody here to listen to it because it's amazing. So, alright. How's that for an in- intro? That's a real intro, guys. Yeah. Give it up for Dwight. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't like to talk. Just this is the longest story Dwight's ever told. That's actually true. It took four years, baby. I thought he was going to cry. <laughs> I was just driving around. That's not over yet. <laughs> anyway.
Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Alka Hollywood. Clint, Jared, and a guest talk about one movie each week, old or new, good or bad, and create a custom cocktail and drinking game around that movie. For more information, go to alkahollywood.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all, thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.